Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. In today's episode, we're talking to Jimmy, co-founder and managing partner of Heartcore Capital. He founded Heartcore in 2007 to challenge the traditional venture landscape in which today's conversation will show you that it's still very much on his mind, as we'll be talking about the macro trends driving European VC today and how Jimmy thinks about navigating these trends. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, which is hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else. Jimmy. Welcome to the show. It's so great having you here. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate uh, what you're doing for our little specialized industry. <laughs> so uh, really happy to be part of it. Thanks so much, Jimmy, and we're very hyped to have you with us. Before we start, we just want to hear a bit more about you and the story behind Hardcore. So please tell us, how did you come into venture and how did you come to found Hardcore? Like many people, I guess, a little bit random. I started in asset management, realized that you're too far away from the action. Then I turned entrepreneur and angel investor and realizing being an angel is slightly lonely. And then in the end, I turned on the VC side, being able to scale it a bit more, right? So full circle. <laughs> and Hardcore came in sort of five years into that journey where I got the opportunity to work for a company called Vex Fund, which I'm sure you know, Andreas, which is like BPI in France, or KFW and so on, which was great training at a point when this industry was not even called VC almost here in Europe. <laughs> Not talking about my age here, but... Uh, now you're 30, right? 30-some. Th th 30-some, <laughs> David, thanks a lot. <laughs> well, well, to, to yeah, the yeah. listeners, they're not seeing you, but you look 30. My wife tells me that I still look young, so uh, no gray hair, and I'm not dying my hair either. <laughs> but then in, in 2007, which is 15 years ago now, actually, to the date almost, uh, we founded Hardcore. And Jimmy, if I'm not wrong, Hardcore actually has a spin-out story. Hardcore was actually spun out from the Danish Growth Fund. We also managed the portfolio we managed there. And then we, at that time, raised a new 100 million euro fund to get started in 2007. That was our fund one. So, Jimmy, I'd love to ask you, given that a lot of our audience are, of course, emerging managers and GPs out there raising funds now, and everyone knows that the market is changing and LP behavior does also so. I'd love to ask you, what is your thinking around raising funds right now in the current market? And also maybe, what have you learned? Yeah, so I think there's a number of things when doing it first. First, I reserve a lot of time for fundraise. <laughs> it takes time in the beginning. <laughs> it will always take time, but it becomes a little bit different things that you focus on. But I think some of these things, a lot of emerging managers have a lot of advice and can seek a lot of advice online. I think there's a couple of things where things that... We thought we knew it all, and then you realized that you didn't. <laughs> Some of the things that are more important than one would think is if you're a team of a few, really make sure how you make decisions, not only investment decisions, but in particular, of course, investment decisions, 
and make sure you don't have veto power to anyone. <laughs> the worst mistakes is investing by consensus. That's a really a lesson learned. Our biggest mistakes at Hardcore have been basically emanating from wrong decision structures. And I think also refine the capital allocation framework and don't have every manager having their pool of money and running around like you're not a team because the reason you have a portfolio is because you have a portfolio, right? So I think you have to think not as an entrepreneur, that's a common mistake. When you're a VC, you are a portfolio manager and an entrepreneur at the same time. So you have to also sometimes think as a portfolio manager. We've had a guest recently that used the term ventrepreneur, and I love that. <laughs> yes, actually, I think that's true. You are a combination of the two. And actually, if you think about it, LPs are often very pragmatic to the almost degree of being cynical. Founders are by nature optimists. They wouldn't be entrepreneurs if they weren't. And VCs are time optimists, but pragmatic. We'll talk about the time optimism a little bit later, I believe. <laughs> we'll have to do a, a mem out of that one or a gif or something for us to put on LinkedIn. I like that one a lot. <laughs> so, Jimmy, I'd love to just change topics a bit and ask you to reflect on the nature of European VC today and maybe contrast that to what you've seen in the States and also what you saw in Europe before. So... The show you are giving us here is called European VC. When I started my career and realized that I need to move to asset management was out of spending actually quite a bit of time in Silicon Valley. Learning from how we thought about investments over here compared to how they thought about investments in the US is so distinctly different. It's becoming more similar now, but it's distinctly different still. Yeah. When you talk to US VCs, entrepreneurs and so on, you are all about opportunity hunting, the upside. When you talk to VCs with investment backgrounds in Europe, you talk about risk reduction. You cannot do venture capital with a risk reduction mindset. And therefore, you can also not make your decision structures based on consensus because the real upside will come from assuming risk under uncertainty, which means that consensus is really a bad tool for taking extreme risks for going for the bigger upsides. And it's so concentrated in the performance upside of VC that consensus doesn't really move the needle. You are not going to make outsized returns if you have that risk reduction approach to things. And that's why your decision structures need to reflect if it's a smallish investment out of the total fund size, you can just take it as a function of the fund size and you can say, okay, of this fund size, I can allow to do 20 investments or 25 or 30 investments, and all of them are going to be real options. It's only when you start to deploy more capital, you have to have a different decision structure of discipline. But you have to be extremely allowing for going for the weird one out that might make all the returns. And then you have to be way more disciplined, almost asset allocation-like in the follow-on investment decisions, right? So you have to be very, very relaxed on the early and they were extremely disciplined on the follow-on. Based on that, I'd love to hear a bit more about how do you actually divide the decision-making power inside your firm and also maybe shed a bit of light on how that changes from uh, the early stage to follow-on rounds. Basically, we have that two needs to support an initial seed, three needs to support initial A, but the reality is that individuals can really run with it. 
And then on the follow-on, a common mistake in the follow-on, in my opinion, is I think you need to be more consensus. I don't know if you will attribute veto powers to anyone, and I'm not sure that's fruitful. I think a common mistake is that you think about it that way, but you allocate reserves per company, and you do that ex-ante to sort of anticipate and think you're smart in your planning and so on. But in reality, you, with portfolio companies, if you build a portfolio, say, over three years, they are at different stages of their lifetime, and, and you don't really know when the follow-on happens. And therefore, we don't allocate money per company. We allocate to maturity, and we allocate on performance, right? So may the best ones win, and the best ones will get more money, and the worst ones will get less to no money. So we don't ex-ante allocate anything. Yep. And those follow-on investment decisions are becoming a lot easier because every quarter we have that review session, and every quarter everyone can see how their portfolio in the perception of the partnership is actually doing, right? So it's actually very visible. We talk a lot about consensus decision-making and so on, and it's not often that we have, you know, a detailed approach as you did, and that's very cool, very interesting, very happy for that. I remember, Jimmy, when we first met over Zoom, it was actually the first time I was physically with Andreas since we started the European VC. So you were on one side <laughs> and we were both kind of chilling on a couch talking. And it was a really cool conversation about macro trends. But why was it cool is because we are these weird creatures that we get super excited about the trends on the GP side, you know, thinking from the inside of the venture industry, where most... VCs talk about macro trends more from an investment perspective of, you know, the different sectors. And I love that conversation. And so I'm going to ask the most open-ended question I've ever asked in this show, which is, you know, what are these macro trends and what excites you about them? When we last discussed, we discussed both this LPGP type of investment structure and 10-year, which is the tradition since the 60s. And I think it comes from whaling, if I'm not mistaken where you send the ships uh, off sea and, you know, a third won't come back because of the weather conditions in the areas where they harvest the whales. And I think that model really had not really been innovated. And now maybe it's because it's practice and maybe, I don't know, whatever, right? The reality is, and when you talk to the LP side, which I know you also do occasionally here, you know that the average VC fund is 15 years average lifetime, not 10. <laughs> Some of them 20 uh, our first fund is 14 years in now, and we still have three years left. So I'm, I'm, I'm no exception to that rule. So that boats the relevant question. This closed-end 10-year thing is not really the reality of our market. If we talk about VC, we talk mostly about technology, right? And it could be biotechnology, it could be software, yeah. it could be climate, it could be whatever. But the reality is that from something that's a PowerPoint and a great idea of someone that has an epiphany of how to change the world until that's a very large business that can be transacted or IPO'd or whatever, at least from a VC perspective, from that's just the VC, this VC exit, the company, go, if it's a great company, that lives on forever, hopefully, right? I mean, we're just a temporary owner. I think that, first of all, you need to think about the timelines, right? Probably need to be more 15, 20 years. I think the best example I can give is if you take biotech, for instance, there, it's a well-defined, you have biotech development. When you have great technology, you have the distributor that buys you, the pharma company, right? It's a well-defined value chain and a high-margin business. Ideally, we would do the same for climate, for instance. The problem is we don't know who the buyers are. And also, we don't know yet all the technologies. If it's deep tech, we'll take probably 20 years to do the quantum computer that will help us improve a lot of things. And when you then also have large projects, they are capital intense, right? So 
if you want to solve climate change, just as an example, I think maybe that's more project finance. Maybe it's 15% equity and 85% project finance. And the ones that really understand project financing and so on, maybe you know, people coming from infrastructure that can solve part of it, and then others can do the project finances for the development of the new projects. Could be in nuclear or could be in renewables or whatever. It's probably a more fitting business model. Yeah. And I don't think that's a GPLP structure. I think that would be a hybrid structure, could even be an evergreen where you recycle. The real question here is, will LPs be content with moving in their alternative investments from them taking the recycling or reinvestment decision, or will they actually also outsource that? And if you outsource that, then you have what is then the redemption possibility if they no longer trust in the manager. Right? And that depends on the liquidity of the underlying assets. Yeah. So I think that that's just going to be a lot of innovation where there will be a lot of hybrids, there will be longer fund structures, there will be more evergreens fitting for certain purposes. And if you want to do an IPO, you also want investors that are evergreen because they are not stock overhang if you do and take a company public, right? And which will hamper, the, hamper down the, the stock price for a long time until people are out of the locker and have done their full sell down and blah, 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 right? All of that stuff. First things first, I love that you start by saying biotech as the perfect example fitting into VC. As someone who started working in a biotech fund, <laughs> so many LPs in Europe saying, nah, biotech takes too long. We don't want to do that. <laughs> I love that you use it as the good example here. It makes my heart warm a bit. The conundrum here is most of the institution investors, their principles have extreme long horizons, but the managers, they don't, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So there must be somewhat of a principal agent problem residing in that industry. I'm not the one that can solve it, but <laughs> I would argue that there's a principal agent problem. Not between the LPs and the GPs, but between yeah. the LPs and their constituents. When you talked about the LPGP model, you also came around, you know, another macro trend that, that's really shaping up in the industry, which is the illiquid stock becoming liquid. And I'd love to just ask your views on that and how you think about that. I think our asset class will become more liquid. And it's with regret because that would mean it's harder for me to generate alpha because the more people that are playing in a market, the more efficient it is, the less easy it is to uh, make abnormal returns because risk is priced more efficiently. <laughs> so for future VCs, not my age, but for future VCs, they probably need to consider that a little bit. I think this would become a very liquid asset class. And I think if you doubt me here, I think have a look at Web3. So if you're a private project protocol and you issue a SAFT, when you then issue your tokens and you are a Series A company, sometimes even earlier, you're liquid. 24-7, 365, high liquidity, and so on. Now, that is kind of venture capital, <laughs> right? And why is that not happening in when you issue stocks? Why does it only happen when you issue tokens? I foresee a future where that type of liquidity that we now start to see in the growth end of the spectrum, where you have some liquidity, secondaries and so on, will become more OTC and there will yeah. be players that will act as market makers here. Maybe I reveal a business opportunity we could have at some point, but I think that will be a market. I think it will be OTC, but I don't think it will be on NASDAQ, but I think it will happen. Jimmy, I've always thought of the liquidity of venture as something that actually forces discipline and being something good, you know, that, that illiquidity. And I've often in conversations with friends and so on, I actually go on my own small little rants about it, how, you know, you see the public markets behaving in such a volatile way and VC can yeah. never actually behave like that because of its illiquidity. 
I completely agree with what you're saying, though, but I'd love to hear your comments. David, the reality is that the investors, well, not the investors, the investors' risk departments and the regulators, they want you to mark to market. And if you mark to market, even though you're illiquid, (laughs) you will have to have swings in your NAVs quarter by quarter. You might not get the illiquidity day by day, but you will get the volatility quarter over quarter. But it also depends on how you price the assets, right? Yeah, but you know, I mean, if you don't have a price of recent investment or a recent uh, current, you have to mark to market, which means you have to do a fair value. So if it's an asset that's no longer just a small little asset in the early stage of you know, 100 million fund value, mm-hmm. and you did 500,000. If it's more prominent on the total NAV, you have to do a fair value. And if you do a fair value, you have to look at peer group, and you have to look at, oh, shit, Robinhood went down 85%. <laughs> I had this little trade republic in my portfolio. Hmm, what should I do? <laughs> Keep it at the same value? I don't know, you know, it's, uh, we don't have trade republic, but we have another one, so I can talk to you. <laughs> Crypto has gone crazy over the last years, and we're seeing it move in a million directions these days. Some are going up, some are going down. There's extreme liquidity in that market, and that, of course, has VC firms experimenting as well with the structures that we're using to invest into this asset class. So I'd love to just hear you think a bit about nature of crypto and Web3 and where do you see us headed with this development? Web3 is basically the next generation of the internet. And basically what it is at its core, it's software protocols, right? And now you just change the C-Corp structure into value creation being denominated in tokens instead. And just because you do that, that suddenly is very liquid because the youngsters of this world and the smarter software developers want to play the market, right? And I think we have 45 million users on MetaMask, which is where I think the internet was in 1995, right? I assume that that 45 million is going to grow. Today, we have 4.6 billion people using the internet on a daily basis, right? I'm just using it as an example. You actually have tech development, early stage companies, in fact, protocols that are public and liquid because you issue shares. I know there's investor, retail investor protection uh, frameworks, and I'm sure there will be retail investor protection frameworks for tokens as well in the future. And they will be taxed and all of that good stuff. But it just shows that it can be done, no? And it has liquidity because there is interest. Jimmy, you just had me thinking before you likened crypto or where crypto and Web3 is today to where the internet was before it really kicked off. And what we have seen now with COVID is for sure that there's been a very, very sharp increase in the globalization of the VC industry. And I'd love to hear you comment a bit on how this will impact our industry going forward and how it already has impacted it. Because I really think that this is one of the major changes that is happening in our industry. Well, now uh, there's a little bit of pause in globalization. I don't think that's only in the venture arena. (laughs) That's a broader phenomenon. The reality is that in the old days, when I started old days, 15 years ago, the startup or the target, we call it the target, the target had to go where the money was mostly Silicon Valley, if you had aspiration. Now, today, the opposite happens, right? So the money goes where the target is. And what that means is that a lot of the sort of institutional VC investors starting at growth and then moving down, maybe to Series A, maybe even earlier, they will seek opportunity in whatever their 
target focuses on a global scale, not really on a zip code around Menlo Park and Sand Hill Road, but really much, much broader than that, right? Which means that you see, especially in the growth arena, you have seen that the larger the rounds are, the more likely it is that it's being led by a US growth investor or VC. Yeah. And then you have had this sort of special situation during COVID that you have seen these crossover funds really dominate them. Asset managers, hedge funds coming in and saying, here's, here's some symmetry in the market, let's grasp that market opportunity. And they have gone in with way more capital than anyone else have dived into this market opportunity for decades, right? And of course, now they have had a punchy nose here, uh, year to date. And today we are early June, right? 2022. And I think if you look at Tiger Global, uh, they lost what was it, two-thirds of the value they have created as a hedge fund since 2001 in a quarter. That hurts, no? But that doesn't mean that they will go away. They will be away for a period, but they will come back. <laughs> so I think it's just becoming global uh, and still US have been like for like more expensive than other markets. You know, then China caught up in terms of valuations, then Europe has been catching up on valuations. And and actually, end of last year, I think European VC activity was 40% of the US. When I started my career, I think it was below 10. So Europe has been catching up, which we like to hear because we're European VC focused here in this audience here. Right? So I think it is becoming global. We have 165 co-investors, more than half are US. I liked what you did when we were talking about the uh, liquidity, uh, illiquidity kind of conundrum, that you took that and kind of turned it into an advice for younger emerging VCs out there. And I'd love to ask you about this. You know, we're talking about globalization, we're talking about new entries, talk about development of the ecosystem. Well, Jimmy, what does that mean for the European emerging VC out there? I think really today the only way to get into the venture arena is specialization. And I think the more global this becomes and the more people are involved, the more we need to go into the trenches of the niche and become specialized. And that goes for both very existing managers with a few yep. maybe notable exceptions to yep. that rule. But even for hardcore, at least, and we are maybe a, in, in this regard on a global scale, more of a mid-sized manager, we would have to specialize as well, right? And I think if you are an emerging manager with you know smaller mandate, you need to be the best at what you do at that particular category, right? Whether you're deep tech or certain parts of climate and so on. Yeah. I think specialization is the only route yeah. into this. Does that deeper technological expertise kind of force us to talk about earlier stage automatically? I think it still does, at least in Europe. If you're constrained by geo and say, I'm a European manager, which we are sort of by and large, yeah. the later stage you go, the less the amount of available opportunities. And the later stage you go, the more sort of opportunistic or yeah. broader you have to be. And the earlier stage with probably 10 or 20 X times the opportunity set, you can uh, do that. If you have more of a global mandate, which might in the future be less of geo situations and more of topics, you say, or sectors or whatever it is, deep tech globally or climate globally or real estate investing globally or whatever. So I think you can go that route. The problem with that route is that from a fundraising perspective, the LPs are still in asset location thinking about geos. They're not there yet. And therefore, they don't allocate only on sectors, just on yep. geo mandates. They allocate, okay, X amount in China, X amount in the US, X amount in Europe, X amount emerging markets, and so on. 
in their overall asset allocation. And it doesn't really fit into their overall asset allocation if you then are a global manager. It's sometimes harder. Yeah. Jimmy, we are getting to the final part of our episode, which is what we call the quick fire. We ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Awesome. First question. In consumer tech, what areas excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? <laughs> so being the contrarian here, I think that most of our peers in Europe really like software-led innovations and SaaS and what have you. And they like that because they are exponential technologies. And there's a little other things that have actually in the last 30 years been exponential technology. But I really do think that we should start to look towards the molecules a little bit. And that would be like cellular agriculture, enzymes and stuff like that. And even though I'd, I wouldn't argue we're experts and you can debate where that links to the consumer or at least the end user, but that is areas where there will be exponential growth opportunities in the future. And I think this war we have now in Europe, unfortunately, is a testament that we need to rethink our food ecosystem. And I think also for the climate side, there's a lot of things that can be done there. Partly software, partly molecules. Right? I completely agree. Very good point. Second question, and this might be a bit redundant, but worst case scenario, we summarize. What are your top tips for European emerging VCs who are fundraising? Find your anchor investor from the specialization which you are specialized in. Get started, start small, demonstrate, take some risk on your own account. Demonstrate, raise the next, even deal by deal, if need be. Don't be too focused on the terms because the terms doesn't matter when it's small. Terms matter when it gets bigger. <laughs> so get started and get some practice yeah. rather than trying to yeah. optimize for something that's not really going to have significant impact in the long-term perspective if you really want to build something. To summarize what you already said, reserve time for fundraising, <laughs> careful with decision-making yes. processes, no veto power, You know, don't invest by consensus, and don't be scared to refine capital allocation structures, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Third and final question of the quickfire round is what can we expect in the future from Jimmy and Hardcore? From Jimmy, you can expect that I'm not retiring anytime soon. You're only 30, so why would you? Yeah, I'm only in the 30s. <laughs> At least that's how I feel. And then from Hardcore, what you could expect is more funds that individually are more specialized with dedicated efforts and team members. And you should expect something on the Web3 side from us course, we don't want to put tokens into our main fund uh, products. And you should also expect that we would be more active on the direct growth side. Super exciting, Jimmy. Thanks a million for joining us. It has been amazing to have you here on the European VC. So cool. Thanks for letting me in here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, which is hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else.